The book of Genesis clearly indicates to us that our creator God communicates with mankind. He did so with Adam and Eve, the very first couple. He did so with Enoch, Noah, and now Abraham. And his visitations were always in some tangible form. He walked in the Garden of Eden with the first couple. Enoch walked with God, indicating some kind of tangible relationship. The Lord spoke to Noah. He spoke to Abraham. He came to him in a vision. And in our passage this morning, uh, the Lord appears to him for the third time. So the transcendent God of the universe is never really very far away. He sees all things and knows all things that happen in the inhabited world that he made. The purpose of the Lord's visitations are twofold. One, to bless his covenant people or to judge those who deserve divine punishment. In our passage today, both of these concepts are apparent. The Lord appears to Abraham to commune with him and announce the birth of the son of promise. He also comes to draw out and complete the faith of Sarah concerning this awesome promise that he has made. But this prefaces the Lord's visit to inspect the cities of the plain whose whose sins cry out to him for justice. As the righteous judge of the world, he has come down to inspect the situation and see if these cries are worthy of retribution. In the midst of that divine visitation, Abraham takes the opportunity to plead for the righteous, revealing that he himself is walking in righteousness and justice as God would have him do. His dialogue reveals to us that God indeed is willing to preserve a mass of unrighteous sinners in order not to sweep away the righteous with them in judgment. The Lord does not visit us today in the same way as the saints of old. He doesn't have to because he communicates with us in his word. As he visits us in that word, he blesses us with everything we need to know for salvation and sanctification. He also assures us that for the sake of the righteous, he's merciful and gracious to the lost. He will not destroy his own when he comes in judgment, but make their way of escape possible. At the same time, sinners need to fear the just wrath of God that will inevitably fall upon them if they do not repent and turn to him. So let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for these stories of old that reveal your truth to us. We're thankful, Lord, that you do visit your people. You visit them in your word today. And Lord, uh, we even have a greater impact and relationship with you because of your word. We're also thankful, Lord, that it's clear in your word that you protect the righteous, that your will will be fulfilled in them, and Lord, that you will one day judge the wicked. Help us, Lord, to 
uh, learn to increase our faith. And Lord, especially when we think things are impossible, that we have a God who is able to overcome impossibility. So Lord, bless these things to our hearts today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want you to see from our passage this morning is that the Lord visits his people to commune and communicate with them. We see this in the first 15 verses. First of all, the Lord appears in order to commune with Abraham in verses 1 through 8. And we find here another manifestation of the Lord. So far, far he has called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan. And the Lord appeared to him in chapter 12 when he first arrived in the land of promise. And the Lord said that his descendants would one day possess that land. Then in chapter 15, the Lord came to him in a vision and informed him that the promised heir would come from his own body. The Lord then made a covenant with Abraham and predicted the future of Israel. In chapter 17, the Lord appears again in an undisclosed way and commands Abraham to walk before him and be blameless. As he does so, the Lord confirms his covenant, and the Lord also informs that the promised seed will come from Sarah. His name will be Isaac, and he will arrive within the next year. So that means that chapter 18 is closely associated with chapter 17, since the Lord again announces that a promised son is going to be coming within the next year. Now, this incident occurs at the home of Abraham, once again by the oak trees of Mamre. That seems to be the center of operations. It's kind of like in the central portion of the land of Canaan as he awaits the fulfillment of God's word. He's sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, perhaps contemplating these very promises of God. Was he wondering how the Lord was going to fulfill these awesome things beyond his real understanding? Was he maybe even praying that the Lord would communicate further with him? Well, as he's there, all of a sudden, three men appear in his sight as he lifts up his eyes. And the word behold here uh, indicates to us that our attention should, should be drawn to these three men and that their arrival is something that is sudden or that Abraham had not noticed until they were nearly upon him. As the narrative continues, it's apparent that the Lord is either one of the visitors or that he's revealing himself through these men. And in this way, his true essence is veiled because, of course, a person couldn't stand it if God appeared to him in his reality. But his presence is undeniably evident. Sometimes all of the men speak. Sometimes only one speaks as the Lord. Now, Abraham greets them in a particular or a peculiar way, we should say, because we learn that there are three men, but he addresses them as one in verse 3. He doesn't say, my lords. He says, my lord, singular. 
And in the Hebrew, this term is Adonai, which is a term usually translated uh, to convey the presence of Yahweh, the Lord. And the other term that could possibly be used here is Adonai, which refers to men who are lords or masters or rulers in some way. So the word that he uses is a word commonly associated with God himself. So that kind of indicates to us that Abraham either understood or thought that this might be appearance, uh, an appearance of the Lord. Um, he might not fully comprehend that, but he at least suspects that it might be so. And by the end of the narrative, there's no doubt that it is the Lord. Now, as the narrative continues, we see the hospitality of Abraham in the situation. He invites the trio to rest and be refreshed by him. And this was customary in that culture. Uh, somebody came to your door and it was perhaps near a mealtime, you would naturally invite them to stay. Nowadays, that would probably be considered kind of rude. Like you're almost inviting yourself at dinner time and you're expecting a meal, and that meal probably would not be offered by many today. And perhaps this was a test given to Abraham to see if he was walking with the Lord and being blameless as God asked him to be back in chapter 17. And as we look at this, we see the eagerness of Abraham to be hospitable to these strangers who possibly could be some kind of emanation of the Lord. Uh, he says, uh, down in verse uh, 6, Abraham hurried into uh, the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Then he ran to the herd. He took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So all of this indicates to us how quickly uh, he responded to the opportunity of showing uh, hospitality and being beneficial to other people, and that he was walking in his integrity as God wanted him to be. And Abraham's hospitality, we see, is very generous. Actually, this is a banquet that could be fit for a king or a very important person. Three measures of meal were far more than necessary to feed three men. A fatted calf could never be consumed by just three people. Butter and milk were the food of uh, fine guests. So Abraham went far beyond expectations in his hospitality and generosity. And these characteristics should be God's people today as well. Such a meal between the Lord and his people is an indication of fellowship and peace. When a covenant was made in ancient times between two parties, it would consist of different parts. Uh, and it was also, all, all, well, not always, but usually commemorated with a meal. In other words, you would sit down with the party you had come into agreement with, and you would have a meal with them, conveying that there was peace between you, there was close communion. 
God has already disclosed his will to Abraham by bringing him into covenant. And the only thing that has not been done as uh, this has been progressive in nature is a fellowship meal. And when the Lord came to Abraham that day, he was in a sense confirming the intimacy of covenant fellowship and peace by sharing that meal with Abraham. Such would be the case in the future sacrificial system of Israel because the, uh, uh, the sacrifices, some of those meals were peace meals where the people and the priests together ate and that showed their fellowship with God. Such was the case with the Lord Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper. And such is the case when we commune with the Lord at our remembrance of his death and resurrection. So that's uh, an important theological point drawn out by this passage. But the Lord had another uh, purpose in mind to Abraham as he came that day. And this was to bolster the faith of his wife, Sarah. And so we also see the Lord communicates with his people to show nothing is impossible for him to accomplish. So let's take a look here at the Lord's announcement with Sarah in mind, because he only communicates directly with her one time. So in verses 9 and 10, he is repeating something that he's already conveyed to Abraham. As they're uh, sitting there eating a meal, Abraham's standing by to, to serve them under the tree as they ate. And it seems almost out of the blue that they say to him, well, where's your wife? And uh, Abraham says, well, she's there in the tent, perhaps even pointing to the opening of the tent. And uh, we, we think here, okay, uh, these strangers know the name of Sarah, especially we wonder how do they know the given name or the new name that God bestowed on her because her name previously had been Sarai. So this should have been a clue to Sarah who was listening behind the tent door to the conversation. Now, the speaker in verse 10 changes to the singular, and he said. So we're going back and forth between three men speaking and then one person speaking, indicating that either the Lord is one of the personalities or the Lord is speaking through them and emanating himself through these men. Later we find out two of them are angels. And he said... This is coming from the Lord. I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So he's speaking to Abraham, but he's knowing that Sarah is in earshot and she's going to hear all of this. So he fully knows that Sarah's been listening and his statement is no doubt more to her attention than that of Abraham, who's already heard and he's believed the promise. He states that he will return according to the time of life, 
which indicates a specific period of time in the future, and it may indicate the springtime when the cycle of natural life begins. So within a year's time, probably less than a year, Sarah will have a son. Now, the Lord already told this to Abraham in his previous appearance in chapter 17. Abraham would have communicated this to his household because it was necessary for all the males to become circumcised. And it seems that Sarah would have been the first to know as God communicated this to him, and she is now, uh, a little time later, being addressed by the new name God gave her, Sarah. But our story indicates that she had serious doubts about the promise. Now let's take a look at her thought processes as the narrative continues. Now in verse 11, we're informed again of the impossibility of this situation. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in years. We've learned that he's almost 100, she's about 90. And then it states specifically Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. She could not have a child. But these strangers come along and they say, at about this time next year, she's going to have a child. So what would you be thinking, ladies, if you were behind the tent door and you heard this conversation? Well, we know what Sarah was thinking because God's word tells us. First of all, Sarah laughed within herself, inside, a silent laugh. Nobody heard her. And this is what she's saying to herself. After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? So she's thinking just like we would, from the viewpoint of the impossibility of this situation. She knows her physical condition, and so it seems ludicrous to believe she would have a child. It was impossible for her to have this pleasure in life, which uh, every uh, Hebrew woman desired. So she laughed. Not outwardly like Abraham did, in perhaps a confused type of amazed joy. But inwardly, she's conveying doubt, and she's saying this could not happen. But we also need to be reminded that at this point, Sarah likely did not realize that it was the Lord speaking. We're told that the Lord made the announcement, repeating what he had already said to Abraham, but Sarah thinks that she's entertaining three men who are strangers, and even though her name has been mentioned, perhaps it just kind of went over the top. It's not yet struck her that something phenomenal was occurring here. And it all changes as the uh, Lord makes his final revelation here. Now, in verses 13 and 14, the Lord rebukes her in a gentle way to engender 
her faith. And note, he doesn't directly speak to Sarah, but he knows she's there, and he's making a statement that Sarah's going to hear. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Well, Abraham wouldn't have even known she'd laughed. So uh, he's really kind of out of the picture here, and the Lord is indirectly speaking to Sarah, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Now, how would anybody know that she laughed and she thought that? No human being could know that. So this should be opening the eyes, the mind of Sarah, that we're not just talking about three men here. There's something greater than this going on. And uh, uh, the key theological point comes ahead when he rhetorically asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's what he wants to get across here. And the word hard means actually wonderful, marvelous, beyond human comprehension, so that you have to accept it by faith. It's an attribute ascribed to the Messiah in Isaiah 9, 6, wonderful counselor. It conveys that nothing is impossible for the Lord of the universe to accomplish. Now, Sarah obviously has not been thinking in those terms, perhaps not even recognizing that it's the Lord here until perhaps right at this moment. She's assessing the situation only by the human standard of impossibility. Now, Abraham had grasped this as best he could, but Sarah's faith needed to be elevated to that of her husband, and her doubt needed to be abandoned and her faith completed. And Sarah's denial indicates her new awareness as to the identity of the one speaking, that it is the Lord. Now in verse 15, Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh. Well, technically speaking, she didn't laugh out loud, but she did laugh in her heart. And the Lord knows this. Why did she do that? Well, because she's afraid. <laughs> Why is she afraid? Well, because this person knows that she laughed and that she laughed inside and she, he knows what she said in her heart. So how could this be anybody uh, but someone who is divine? And perhaps at this moment she discerns that this is the Lord after all. She puts two and two together. And so now she's backtracking, wishing she hadn't said anything because this would be offensive to the Lord who had spoken these promises in the first place. So the Lord doesn't let her get away with that. The Lord makes sure her words stand when he says, no, but you did laugh. So he directly speaks to her when she uh, responds in that way. So both she and Abraham will be reminded that when the Lord made his incredible announcement, they both responded in laughter perhaps of different kinds, but in uh, indeed when the promised son arrives, they will gladly name him Isaac, which means he laughs. So it will always be a reminder to them of the miracle God performed 
uh, to make his covenant word come true. One commentator said this, The remembrance of the laughter preserves the divine rebuke for mistrusting the Lord's omnipotence. Sarah had not renounced the Lord in unbelief. Rather, she had found his specific word incredible. So this one thing was too hard for her to believe, and she had to turn to it in faith because, humanly speaking, it was not possible. So this displayed to Abraham and Sarah that it would not be by human means that God's promise will be fulfilled. They could never take the credit for it. It was all due to his divine activity and power, and we can never put a limitation on God's ability to accomplish his word, even in the face of what we consider impossible. With God, all things are possible. So Sarah's faith comes to where it needs to be. It's complete. Now, the rest of the passage, we see that the Lord's visitation uh, is as the righteous judge, and he's going to assess the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain. And so we have uh, him coming now as a righteous judge. And we find the righteous judge reveals his intentions to his people in verses 16 to 21. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. So they're heading toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them a certain uh, way. The two men go forward and apparently one stays, or at least the Lord is speaking to him here. And the Lord, before he says anything to Abraham, is kind of deliberating within himself. So we have the Lord's deliberation. And he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So this has to do now with the fulfillment of God's purposes in calling Abraham. And the question is, would it be just to exclude Abraham from what he is about to do in regard to the cities of the plain? Because Abraham is is going to be the progenitor of a great and mighty nation, and eventually all nations will be blessed through him. So Abraham... As the first, the the leader of that uh, coming nation must be a man of integrity who is righteous and just. And this would be an opportunity for him to prove himself as that as God discloses what he is about to do. And this is one of the purposes for which God has chosen him in the first place. Uh, The Lord says, I know him, and that verb to know is related to the concept of election uh, with the nuance of familiarity and intimacy. The Lord has equipped him with the ability to command or teach his children and his household the important qualities 
of righteousness and justice. He will teach them to live right, to walk with the Lord as he has done, to be blameless, to learn how to judge and render judgments with fairness and equity. So this is something that will eventually develop in the law of God as the nation of Israel comes into existence. What God is about to do is evidence of his own righteous character and judgment and a test of Abraham as well. So he's going to share with his chosen heir his intentions for the cities of the plain. And he communicates this in verse 20 and 21. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the Lord's communication here divulges the cause of the visitation. Firstly, there has been an outcry that has come to him in heaven out of these cities of the plain. And this particular term, outcry, is used as the appeals of the poor and the needy and the oppressed. And we see this from time to time in Scripture. The Lord always hears the cries of such people, even though they may not be in his covenant. And secondly, he mentions that their sin is grave. We've already uh, been told that uh, Sodom was a wicked city. Uh, It was a sinful place. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, we see what the sin was that caused the demise of these cities. And there were three things mentioned in that passage. First of all, they were guilty of neglecting the poor and the needy while they themselves lived in luxury. So that's something that God's going to judge. They were also guilty of arrogance and pride, which always needs to be judged by the Lord. And thirdly, they committed abominations that will be revealed in the next chapter. But the Lord is going to divinely inspect these things to see if it is bad, is as bad as the, the outcry that's coming to him. Now, of course, these are anthropomorphic terms, viewing the situation and acting as men would. So the Lord really kind of already knows this, but as the just judge, he will not act arbitrarily. He will search out the truth just as a human judge or a human lawyer would do to come to a verdict. So we understand that the Lord is is going to be right and just in whatever he does. And we see here, as the narrative continues, that this righteous judge, the Lord, hears the appeals of his people on behalf of the righteous. The men go on their way to Sodom, but Abraham still stands before the Lord in verse 22. And on the basis of the Lord's righteous character, Abraham makes these appeals that we read earlier. And in his thinking, God would not be just to destroy the righteous 
as he punished the wicked. So Abraham asked the Lord if he would spare the cities for 50 righteous people. Now, verse 25 is the key theological phrase here. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer, obviously, is yes. Now, Abraham is not only assuming in his negotiation the righteous judgment of God, but he's also declaring his own sense of justice in agreement with the character of God being revealed. So he's displaying divine qualities that should be operative in God's people, especially the one who's going to be the progenitor of the nation of Israel. Now, as the story goes on, Abraham negotiates down to just 10 people, and he's doing this in a, in a humble way. And God agrees in the end to spare the cities for just 10 righteous people. Now, we do not know the population of those cities. But even if it was only 10,000, 10 people would be only one-tenth of one percent. And that indicates to us or helps us understand the mercy and the grace of God in today's world. For the sake of the righteous, he does not exercise judgment as severely as he could. And uh, this is also a good argument for his taking the righteous out of the world before the tribulation period, because he's not willing to make the righteous suffer with the wicked in his judgments. Now, sometimes in the world, the righteous do suffer, but it's not because of the judgment of God, it's due to some other kind of situation. So as we ponder these points this morning, this passage of scripture, what are some things that we learn? Well, first of all, we learn that God is not very far away, although sometimes we think he is. He's always near his people. He communes with them through his word and in his church, but it's a two-way street. He can't commune with us if we don't commune with him and if we're not in his word. He communicates with us in order to meet our needs, whatever those needs might be. In this case, it was to bolster the faith of Sarah and to indicate fellowship and harmony with Abraham and, and to get them to, to, uh, to encourage them to believe him even in the face of an impossible situation. And there are many things in the word of God that we can't wrap our minds about. They're too wonderful for us to fully comprehend. But why do we believe them? Because they're in his word. For instance, the the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of uh, the incarnation, the doctrine that Jesus is both man and God. We cannot grasp those things. They're too wonderful. But we accept them. We believe them. Even to the human mind, they're impossible because we're trusting in God's revealed word. So that's the kind of faith that we need to have today. Sometimes it, it seems impossible that certain people can be saved. Well, maybe they won't be saved, but they can be saved. 
because God is capable of doing it. It's really kind of impossible for anybody to be saved. God has to save everyone. Sometimes it seems impossible that uh, we're never going to quit sinning, but someday he says we will. Sometimes it may seem impossible that a particular prayer is going to be answered when we've been praying it for perhaps even years, but if it's God's will, he will eventually answer. Sometimes it seems justice in the world is never going to prevail, but God says one day it will when Christ returns. We have to believe that. So we, like Abraham and Sarah, have to grow in our faith and understanding of the word of God and believe that even when things appear impossible, God is able to do it. We can also be thankful that God hears our appeals not to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And even as our country, <clears throat> excuse me, even as our country seems to be crumbling before our eyes, the Lord will help and protect the humble and the faithful and the righteous, even as he mercifully delivers Lot in the next chapter, and how we need that encouragement in our current national circumstances. And then finally, we also see that God's people should display characteristics similar to Abraham that are really kind of Christ-like. Now, unlike Christ, we need to grow in faith. Abraham and Sarah are doing that. But they are also generous in their hospitality, opening their home to uh, meet the needs of travelers that they're not exactly sure who they are in the beginning. And walking with God in righteousness and justice, as Abraham has proved, and may God give us his grace to walk in the same way that Abraham did, which really parallels the way that Christ did. So let's uh, ask God for his grace, his mercy, the fullness of his spirit, to learn these valuable lessons from his word. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful today that in these uh, Old Testament experiences, there is much for us to learn and obey today. Lord, help us to be hospitable like Abraham was and greatly generous in that hospitality. Help us, Lord, when we have issues with believing that which seems to be impossible to increase our faith as you did Sarah and bring us to uh, the completion of it. And Lord, we pray that even as we live in a world that deserves your just um, judgment, that you would help us uh, to not only be spared from it, but Lord, to warn others about it and help them come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask your blessing in these ways, in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.